Several years ago, uh, there was an Australian tourist uh, who went walking on the street in a European country, completely unsuspected. A group of 15 young men approached him and brutally attacked him. He defended himself as much as he could, pulled out a pocket knife, and managed to stab one of his attackers. He ended up serving a 16-year sentence in prison. This uh, young uh, man, these uh, a group of people, were fans of one of the most popular sports teams in that country. And they mistakenly took the guy to be a fan of a rival team just because he had something on the sleeve of his shirt that resembled the logo, the emblem of the other team. It's a divided world we live in. When you think of division, you don't really have to go to look too far. We ourselves are part of all kinds of divisions. Just think of election times in the U.S. I know when I say election times, it used to be a, a period of time. I, I feel like the last several years has become like every time is election time. I'm speaking to someone this morning. I know you're passionate about politics. People not only disagree strongly with, with the opponents, with your friends that side with uh, another political party, we not only have different opinions, but you would go out and say things, and you would post things, and social media is uh, flooded by that stuff. You say things that literally would strip the opponents, even your friends who don't agree with you, from any kind of human dignity. It's a divided world. As I was thinking about this, I thought there must be something there must be something in the human nature that pushes us towards division. There must be something that creates in us this inclination towards division. Something that incites us to be so passionate about our opinions that it creates a desire in us to see the other side hurt, suffering, miserable, morally destroyed. In fact, uh, I don't even think that's a new trend in society. Often we think that things are getting worse and worse. I, I hear some of you say that, and uh, you typically say, well, it's getting worse and worse. Jesus is coming. Now, I take the second part. Jesus is coming. We know that for sure. I'm not sure about the first part. I'm not sure that things are getting worse and worse. Just turn to the pages of history. What you will find is all throughout human history, humanity has been divided. Humanity has fought all the time. We're divided ethnically, racially, socially, economically, and in any other imaginable way. What about the church? What about the church? How are we dealing with division? Jesus knew that his followers will face this challenge. He knew that they would live in a world that is divided. He knew that they themselves, being humans, will tend to divide. 
but Jesus also knew the solution to the problem. And he prayed to God the Father for that solution to become reality. And so this morning I want us to explore together a small portion of one of the most remarkable prayers ever prayed. It is the so-called high priestly prayer of Jesus. High priestly prayer of Jesus. It's called like this because Jesus, just like an Old Testament high priest, is offering a prayer to God the Father. It's a prayer of intercession for his disciples. And we find it recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 17. Now, I'll have to say that this is uh, by far the longest prayer of Jesus that we have recorded in the Bible. And it's also the longest prayer recorded in the whole New Testament. A very significant piece of Scripture. Just to give you a little introduction to it, I will say that... Uh, Jesus is praying to the Father right before he is arrested. So we can have an idea where he is in his situation. He was talking to the disciples and now he shifts from what is called the, uh, that discourse, final discourse. Now he's shifting from talking to the disciples to talking to the Father. He's shifting to praying to God the Father. And in this prayer, you would find uh, two main parts. In the second parts, you'd find also two pieces to it. So, uh, I'd say three parts in total. In that first part, Jesus is praying for himself. He prays to God the Father that through his death, God will be glorified. That people will get to know that God is the only God and that Jesus is the Son of God. And then he's praying for the disciples. First, he's praying for his own disciples, those that are around him, the apostles and a few more probably around them. He's praying to God that God would transform their lives. He's praying that God the Father would protect them, protect them from the evil one because Jesus knows they'll face some temptations, they'll face some challenges, they'll face some struggles in the future. He's praying for them also for protection because he knows that they will be persecuted, that people won't always like their message as they go around and share the good news. So he's praying that God the Father will protect them when they're in danger. And then comes this last part. Jesus is still praying for disciples, but he is praying for his followers in the future. He is praying for those who will come after the apostles. He's praying for you and for me. He's praying for all of us today. That's where we find it in the Gospel of John, chapter 17. I'm going to read from verse 20 to verse 26. This time I'm going to use the ESV version. So if your version differs a little bit, don't get too anxious. It's also going to be on the screen. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, 
that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. You see, it's significant that of all the things Jesus could do before he was arrested, I mean, he could have healed a bunch of people. He could have preached another great sermon to the crowds. He could have uh, given a few more lessons to his disciples. Instead, Jesus devotes these last moments to praying. It is significant that of all things he could have prayed about and prayed for, Jesus is praying for unity among his followers, that they may all be one. Jesus must have anticipated that in a divided world, unity will be a challenge for us, his future disciples. He understood that our future as believers, as a community of Christ followers, will depend on whether or not we are united. It's that unity that will make all the difference. Of course, it begs the question, then, what is unity? How do we describe it? How do we define it? Well, we can certainly go into all the theological books and dictionaries and look for some of those descriptions and definitions. I doubt we'd remember most of that, but I want to offer us this morning a very quick and brief summary or idea of what unity may look like. To be united, to be united, to be aligned with one another, to be bound together. To be united, to be aligned with one another, and to be bound together. You see, in the time of Jesus, in the early church, there were a lot of challenges. One of the biggest challenges was the huge difference between Jews and Gentiles. In other words, between Jews and anybody else. Jews being the chosen people of God and everybody else. How would they come together and worship together as the people of God, united? Uh, There was another big divide 
It was between slaves and free. How would a slave owner get together with his slaves and sit down and be taught the word of God or get up, stand up and raise their hands and worship God together? How would they go out and serve others together? Another big divide was between men and women. How would men and women come and worship together and be the church of God united? How would women find their place and role in a community of Christ followers in that male-dominated and male-driven society? I don't know if you've you've ever thought about this, but uh, we can confidently say that uh, the church today is the largest global organization on the planet. Have you ever thought about that? The church is the largest global organization in the world. It beats Walmart, it beats Amazon, it beats Google, it beats anybody. No commercial intended. And yet, we seem to be also the most divided organization on the planet. It's been said long ago, and I think it's still true that in America, for example, Sunday morning is the most segregated time of the week. Blacks worship with blacks, whites worship with whites, rich worship with rich, poor worship with poor. Hispanics worship by themselves, English-speaking worship by themselves. If you go to bigger cities, you'd see Romanian churches, Bulgarian churches, Jamaican churches, all kinds of churches. Everybody is within their own pod. But Jesus is praying for unity among his followers. What is the secret of such unity? Where is such unity to come from? Sometimes we think that uh, to be united means that uh, we have to agree with one another on everything. Many of us, on the other hand, fall into this trap of thinking that uh, there is one way to worship God, one way to express our Christian faith, and that's the right way. That's the only way. I really wish I could count, I wish there were statistics about this, how many churches got split around the life-threatening issue of using drums during worship time on Sunday morning. I know at least of a few, not just here in the States, but in other countries. Obviously, we differ in our understandings, in our preferences. So where is unity to come from? Jesus is not leaving clueless. In his prayer, he gives us the key. He gives us the foundation for such unity. We can find it very easily if we're careful readers. Sometimes we miss those little words. But if we pay attention to this in-language that Jesus is using, I'd call it the in-language. That little preposition. Verse 21, he prays like this, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. 
Ah, oh, this is this alignment, the bond that Jesus has with the Father that would be reflected in the alignment and bond between us as his followers. Verse 22 at the end and beginning of verse 23, almost identical. He says that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. Ah, it's the all intimate bond between Jesus and the Father in the Holy Trinity that is the foundation for this mutual bond uniting us as Christ followers. It's in this mutual bond in dwelling of the three persons of the Trinity that we find the model, we find the source of perfect unity. Jesus is praying for unity among his followers that reflects, that is rooted, that stems from the unity that we see within the Holy Trinity. It is our indwelling with God that makes our unity as his followers even possible. It makes you wonder what lack of unity may be a symptom of. Let me suggest that if there's lack of unity, I would wonder how much of God's presence dwells within us. I would wonder how much we, as a community, dwell in God. But I have good news. The good news is that unity has been already achieved in the redeeming work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. He came, He lived, He taught, He ministered and served. He died on the cross for us. And He rose from the dead for our justification. And He brought us to God and He brought us to one another. He is the foundation of unity. He's already done it for us. What is left for us to do is to work hard on achieving it in real terms and working on that foundation. What is left for us to do is to maintain it through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I say this for a reason. Because you see, if we could achieve it on our own, Jesus wouldn't have prayed for it. He would have just said, Father, I know there will be one. That will be a great thing. Bless them. Instead, he knows that's going to be a struggle. He knows that's going to be a challenge. He knows this is something we're going to need to face. And that's why he's praying. That's the thing he's praying for at the very end of his life, right before he's arrested. How significant is that? He knows that we're not able to do it on our own. He knows that God will need to enable us so that we may all be one. One thing that uh, this part of the prayer strongly implies in this in language of Jesus is that notion. This one notion that is the key. And that notion is the notion of relationship. Relationship. 
Let me talk to you about relationship for a little bit. God himself is a relational being. This is one of the most fundamental aspects of the Holy Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Existing forever in the circle of mutual bond, contemplating each other, being connected eternally with each other, relating to one another. But God is also self-sufficient. He doesn't need to be in a relationship with any of his creation or creatures. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need humans as a fan base so he could feel complete or fulfilled in his existence. His existence is not dependent on any external reality. But God enjoys being in a relationship. He loves relating to his creation. Relationship is deeply ingrained in God's very own nature. God delights in his relationship with his people. What about us as humans? As humans, we're made in the image of God. That's what we read in the very first chapters of the Bible. What that means is a big question. The scholars and theologians are discussing this, trying to figure it out. It's not very clear. There's different answers. Books are written on the subject. But we can say with confidence that at least one aspect of that fact that we're made in the image of God is that we are made to be relational by nature. We are created this way. Uh, you may remember when God created Adam. He was all by himself. Even the animals couldn't quite keep him company. So when God brought Eve on the platform, it says, at last, finally the guy is not bored. Finally he is not by himself. Man cave didn't quite work too well. But we are created. We are not self-sufficient. We are actually self-deficient. We are dependent on God. We are dependent on those around us. God created us to be social beings. So we live and exist in relationship to him and in relationship with one another in society. But also... Because we are created to be relational. It's in our relationship with God and with one another that we find ultimate fulfillment and completeness. I know this may be stating the obvious, but sometimes the obvious must be stated because it's just too obvious to miss. But there can be no unity without relationship. How do you get united with someone you don't know? How do you achieve unity with someone you barely greet? So where do we start? How do we go about this? I think there's uh, many ways to go about building relationships. There's some simple ways that can help us move forward in unity. I'll mention just a few 
and you can modify and come up with a bunch more. But start inviting people for dinner. Invite them to your home. Who'd say no to a nice meal? I won't. Go fishing together. I know some of you have been doing this. Go together for a round of golf. Go work out together if your schedules allow that. Just do the natural thing. Just be a human. The way God created you to be. Go help a brother or sister with a need they may have. A broken lawnmower that they cannot fix and you're good at those things. Go help them. It's an opportunity to spend some time together. To chit chat, to get to know each other. But you know, in all these, uh, there's one key. One thing that's going to make it work, actually. It's to be committed and persistent. Keep doing it. The more you do it, the more you're going to see the result of it. Over time, you'll be surprised by the depth and intimacy in relationship that we have developed. You'll be surprised by the level of closeness. You'll be able to start seeing and feeling what unity is like. Well-known evangelist D.L. Moody says, there are two ways of being united. One is by being frozen together, and the other is by being melted together. What Christians need to be united is in brotherly love, and then they may expect to have power. See, Jesus is praying for us, his followers, to be one. And this unity is rooted. It reflects. It stems from the unity within the Holy Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But Jesus doesn't stop there. And I'm glad because he gives us also a clue as to what the goal and the result of such unity will be. When we look into this, uh, you may be surprised by the incredible potential and power that unity carries within itself. In verse 21, he says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. In verse 23, he says the same. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, is that when people around us see the kind of unity we live in, that will serve as a witness to them. And you're probably asking yourself at this point, well, how can this be? How will this happen? I think that when the unity Jesus is praying for starts to become a reality in our community of Christ followers, people begin to see a difference. A difference that they're not able to see anywhere else around them. It's pretty much a lost dream to anticipate, to experience unity in any sphere of life around us. All you witness is division. 
People are split and separated today by ethnicity, by race, social and economic circumstances, by their interests. We are separated and split within the church by our worship styles, traditional, modern, contemporary, blended, halfway this, halfway that, mountain style, Texas style, beach style. We're split and separated by non-essentials about our faith. How we do baptism or how we perform communion. How often do we do communion in our churches? You sit with someone from another church, it takes you about three seconds to figure out how different you are. We live in a fragmented world and we live in a fragmented church. But it is that difference of unity that becomes very noticeable. You know, difference, uh, that word difference, is one way to describe holiness. I know in our little definitions, typically when we say holy, we mean sinless, someone without sin. And that certainly is part of holiness, but that's not all. When we say about God that God is holy, what we really mean is that He is completely different, that He is set apart from anything else that exists, that He is utterly different, absolutely different. And, you know, that's one reason or the main reason we shouldn't compare God with anything. Uh, sometimes we put God in our little charts and say, well, look what the devil is doing and look what God is doing. How can you even compare? Or we say, well, here's my problem and here's my God. You cannot even compare that. God is beyond this reality. He created everything visible and invisible. You cannot even compare him with anything. He is different. He is holy. But it's in that difference, the difference of unity in our group of Christ followers. It's that difference that introduces us into this broken, fragmented world that we live in. Unity becomes a witness to a watching and seeking people from the world around us. Unity becomes a witness to the watching and seeking people from the world around us. Jesus prays that such kind of unity will become visible in our church community so that this difference will be inviting for people around us. They'll take note of it. They'll be open to explore. They would want to come and see what's going on here. People will wonder where such unity came from in the first place. People will quickly realize that there is no human power that is able to unite a group of people, group of individuals, to be such unity, to be in one, except by a power that is outside of them. What will they see? Ha! They will see a group of people with transformed life who are marching to the beat of a different drummer. 
They will see a group of people who are bound to one another in the way they love and serve one another. They will see a community that is driven by one vision, by one mission, Christ followers in complete alignment with God and with one another in their pursuit of God's kingdom. They will see a community that is committed to the work of the kingdom of God more than to anything else by caring, by praying, by generous giving, by sharing the good news of Jesus wherever they go. Herman Edwards, a colorful and witty coach with the Kansas City Chiefs, says about his team, the players that play on this football team will play for the name on the side of the helmet and not the name on the back of the jersey. You see, friends, unity becomes a manifestation of the transforming power of God in our lives. Unity becomes an expression of what God's love can do in the hearts of individuals in a community of Christ followers. Don't you wish to be part of such a community? Don't you wish you would experience this kind of unity? Wouldn't you want to see our church being such a place, being such a group that makes a real difference in this community and in this world. Jesus prayed for you and for me. He prayed for us that we may all be one. Amen. Amen. Amen.